Welcome to Riding Westward. I'm your host, Brennan Rensink. When we think about quote-unquote regional history or stories, it may seem peculiar to look outward towards the international or transnational for understanding. But any careful study of the American West shows how thoroughly the region's recent past and present were shaped by global forces. The region was one of global contest, and even events that seem unique to the region were often mirrored by like events in other colonial settings. This month, we speak with Dr. Yana Lati about his 2019 book, The American West and the World, Transnational and Comparative Perspectives. His work is an excellent reminder that we should view international people's connections and stories as central to the West, rather than as exotic, accidental, or anomalous. I'll introduce Dr. Lahti a bit more in a moment, but first, some housekeeping. For new listeners, let me take a quick moment to explain a bit about the podcast. Each episode features a conversation with authors, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, academics, or others who write about the North American West. Our goal is not only showcase their work, but to spark curiosity among you, the listeners, to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the people who call it home. If a writer intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation, with me playing the roles of host, producer, sound engineer, and just about everything else, all of which entail tasks for which I have very little training. But I am passionate about the North American West, and all the work is well worth the excuse to read more and to talk to interesting people. At the end of this episode, I will include some more information on me and my scholarship and on the Red Center, our programming and projects and funding opportunities that you could apply for. That's right. We may want to give you money. With all this business out of the way, let's move on to today's conversation. First, I'd like to introduce to you who it is we're talking to and why. Dr. Jana Lati teaches history at the University of Helsinki, is an Academy of Finland research fellow and the editor of the journal American Studies in Scandinavia. He's the author of multiple books and articles, most notably the recent monographs, Cinematic Settlers, The Settler Colonial World in Film, and Wars for Empire, Apaches, the United States, and the Southwest Borderlands. Today we talk about his 2019 book, The American West and the World, Transnational and Comparative Perspectives. Rather than a project based in new archival work, this text is a useful synthetic overview of a variety of topics and drawing from a robust literature of recent scholarship. By offering a bird's-eye view of the ways in which the American West can be viewed through its transnational connections or comparative perspectives, Lottie asks us to take nearly every conceivable Western story we know and consider how it likely fits into global contexts that we often overlook. Viewing Western histories as unfolding in tight connection with global worlds promises new understandings of the past, and perhaps more importantly, better understandings of our present globalized Western lives. Dr. Jana Lakti, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Brendan. Uh, it's a big pleasure to be here, uh, talking to you from, from across another continent, from, from Helsinki, Finland. Great to be here, meaning on the other side of the world, but... It's great that we can meet virtually and chat, isn't it? <laughs> I actually want to talk a little bit about Finland. And for people who have been following um, scholarship in the American West may have noted that there is an interesting cluster of scholars in Finland working on the North American West and on indigenous peoples. Can you give us a little background? What's the genesis of this Finnish fascination and, and scholarly expertise about the American West? There, there, actually, yeah, you're right. There's there are several several of us already, and uh, uh, I think that one of the one of my books uh, was was reviewed in Western History Quarterly, but almost a decade ago. Then, and I can't remember the reviewer, but he or she stated that there's this, this Helsinki School for American West. There seems to be this this kind of phenomenon going on. Uh, obviously, all most most of us are, are students of, of Marco Henriksson, 
who has uh, who's now retired uh, but has pioneered a great career in American studies and uh, and has also had special interest in American ways. But there there are several. Becca Hamelainen uh, is probably uh, probably the most famous uh, uh, professor in Oxford these days. Uh, Ronnie Anderson here in Helsinki with me. We actually work like quite a lot together these days. Uh, Sami Lakomäki in Oulu in the north. Uh, Another great scholar, and there's 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 several of us like that. Like you said, I, it, uh, of course, Henriksson is, is the scholarly influence, basically behind all of us. Uh, but of course, uh, I don't know if there's there's of, of course there's this general fascination with the Wild West um, that I at least have as a child, and uh, of course in hindsight as a, as, a, as a middle-aged man now, uh, you can. Well, you can easily exaggerate those those kind of influences, but you can actually also see those influences. That as a kid you are fascinated with the American West, and and, and it somehow grew into a profession, uh, which is art. Uh, <laughs> but still, was the American West of your childhood similar to that of? I've talked to people from Germany, where you know Western movies, American, American and Italian, and other, and German-made Western movies were a big part of their childhood. Was it similar in Finland? It was similar in Finland in some ways, at least. Uh, I believe that it was most popular uh, a generation before me in the 60s. Uh, and, uh, and when I was a young kid growing up in the 80s, I was kind of an oddball already because uh, uh, computer games uh, have replaced playing Cowboys and Indians. and But I was still playing Cowboys and Indians. I had all these uh, miniature figures and all these toys and uh, and... But the, the Western movies were also kind of uh, not that popular anymore. Of course, Clint Eastwood was, was popular, but still I was very fascinated by these older Westerns, Randall Scott, uh, John Wayne, uh, Jimmy Stewart. Uh, the, those were kind of a big influence uh, as, uh, growing up. There was, there was also, of course, in the 80s, there were two TV channels, uh, so it was it was uh, the, the, the range was limited. But there was this this tradition on on, on one of those channels of having a monthly western, uh, every month an old classic western, and that's one of the first uh, actual memories I have of, of watching those with my my parents and 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 I think it was Randall's the first image I have is Randall Scott's uh, uh, Ride Lonesome uh, movie, if you know that. Uh, so. In the 80s, uh, it, was, it was fading. The Western popularity was fading. But we, uh, I have a couple of friends who are 15 or so years older than I am. And they, they are, they, they, uh, I mean, we've been discussing that they, they told me that when they were kids, everybody was playing Cowboys and Indians. Everybody was always reading these Western comics. I was also reading Western comics. Uh, Lucky Luke, Dex Wheeler. I only realized as an adult that they were actually European-made comics. That they were not American comics at all. I know, but hardly anybody knew in, in in the U.S. knew about these comics. But they were very popular, and they're still very popular in Europe. They're still Tex uh, Miller, uh, for example, uh, Blueberry, uh, also one of those series, uh, and Lucky Luke. The Tex Miller and Lucky Luke. There's more. Uh, there's constant new albums coming, and then of course they're from Tex Miller is from Italy, and Lucky Luke is from France. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, but as a kid, they were a big thing and uh, uh, collected those albums. And actually, at some point in my 20s, I sold the albums, but I am, now I'm rec- recollecting them yeah. again. So. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting and somewhat counterintuitive for a lot of people to consider that, you know, that there are foreigners uh, studying our region here in the American West. And, but, uh, but you bring with it a very different outside perspective. But some people in terms of actually thinking about history and foreign connections may find it counterintuitive to look at Western and Western regional history and how it was shaped by connections to outside the region. Even though the more you look, the more you realize that Western history has been constantly driven by outside factors and by transnational and international connections. And this is actually an, an idea that we haven't dealt with much on the podcast, kind of the international and transnational world into which the American West uh, developed. So I'm happy we can do a little bit about that today. Beyond kind of the first initial moments of 
European exploration of the American West, right? We have all these really well-known narratives of European explorers. I think that's when a lot of people stop thinking about international things in the American West after it was initially explored, right? Why do you think that is? Why is it that people, at least Americans, forget all of the international transnational contexts so early in our regional history? I think it's, it's a very common trait also here in Europe. Uh, uh, of course, there are probably several explanations, but one of the things has to do with the development of, 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 of kind of the, the nation state as the framing idea of history, that, that, that everything needs, that we, 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 are, we are Finns, those are Swedes, and those are Russians, and we are all very different. Well, of, of course, we are not very different, but that idea that, uh, that history is compartmentalized into these na nation state paradigms, the nation state boxes, uh, it's it's for the, if you think about Finnish history, we have a lot of interactions with the Scandinavian neighbors, with, with our neighbors to the east, the Russia, Russia and beyond, and also to Germany and, and Central Europe. But still, the the kind of history I was taught at at, at school in the nineties was that Finland was was the the, the, the logical result, the, the end result of history, the kind of a, a culmination point. Uh, and Finnish independence was was gained from Russia, but it was not emphasized that it was gained within this context of the great revolutions of World War One and the the, the 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 kind of uh, uh, all the activity going on. And, and we actually actually chose a, a German king for ourselves during World War One, and and then of course it all fell apart in a couple of months. But all these connections were kind of hidden, and also. When Finland changed hands from from Sweden in 1809 to Russia, it was taught in within this context. Uh, nobody told that Napoleon actually was the the great instigator of that that exchange. And all, all these kind of connections are hidden when you have to and try to emphasize this nation state as the prime mover uh, of history, the the, the 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 essential unit of history. And of course, this book uh, is, is is an attempt to kind of uh, go against that. They take another different type of look. In the U.S. West, um, uh, the exploration, explorations, uh, the, the idea that U.S. West was international before it was national, uh, of course, puts emphasis on these explorations and all those. But when you think about Lewis and Clark, the usual story of Lewis and Clark pioneering the trail uh, to the Pacific, the Pacific was full of activity. There were, there were indigenous peoples, there were Hawaiians there, there, there were, the Russians were there, the British were there, the French were there. Uh, I think uh, uh, by the time the Lewis and Clark re reached the, the Pacific Ocean, there was uh, like tens, several different, even smaller states from Europe, even city-states like Hamburg had ships on, on, on the Pacific coastline. And, and so it was, it was teeming with activity, trade that linked American West through the Pacific to China and beyond to the British East India Company and then to all the world the British Empire but the, on the of course uh, to the interior of North American West and then fur trade for example linking to the to the, to the Europe and, and and all these European empires already spreading across the world so it was very international all along so it's just this this tendency and this this habit we have of thinking through the nation state uh, which I personally think we, we should try to question and try to get rid of. Uh, but of course, that's easier said than done. Um, well, I think in America, especially the West has really become a core part of our national creation myth, right? And this idea of what made America, Americans American, it was all wrapped up in the West. And that comes out in the Western films and movies that you and grew up on others, you know, but it was all wrapped up in explaining who we are and uh, the validity of our claims to these lands and so forth. But I do think that's funny. So Lewis and Clark show up like in, you know, 1805 or whenever it was. And, yeah. And the native, you know, the Chinooks and native peoples there, they weren't like, Oh my goodness, who are you? Uh, like white people. We never seen this before, but they've been interacting with uh, Europeans for, you know, over a hundred years. You, you talk about what you call the Great Pacific Rendezvous, this intersection of so many different European empires, and as you say, even city-states up in the Pacific Northwest, which is where I'm from. So I like, I like reading about these 
international stories about kind of my home region, but can you paint the picture for us a little bit of the 16th century international world and competition that was happening in the Pacific Northwest, that northern coast, Vancouver Island? Who all was there and what were they engaged in? Well, there, as actually, like you mentioned, there, there were several different uh, European empires engaged. And uh, uh, for example, the Russians were coming down from Alaska. Uh, they were you usually connect the Russians with only with Alaska uh, when you talk about North America. And you will usually only s- s- emphasize that they were there for trading, that they were uh, killing different types of animals, uh, perhaps some missionary work in Alaska as well. But for take, take for example, Fort Ross, in, in, which is about, uh, less than 100 miles north of San Francisco. Uh, and it, it, it was a trading post, Russian trading post, started in the early 1800s. But it was also imagined in St. Petersburg, at least in certain circles, that it would be the starting point of Russian settler colonization in North America. Of course, the, the Spaniards were, they have been in, in, in the U.S. Southwest for centuries already in New Mexico, but their expansion also on the California coastline, the, the missionary system was was spreading northward and they made claims on 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 the Pacific Northwest coast. And that's why if you if you look up there, you know, the Strait of Juan de Fuca, Fidalgo the, the Island, are, yeah, Lopez Island. I mean, that's all Spanish yeah. names in the San Juan Islands. And as a kid, I was like, why, why, why are these Spanish names up here in the Pacific <laughs> Northwest, right? But there's this overlapping far northern Spanish claim. My students are always blown away when I am like, how far south did the Russians claim? And they're like, uh, the inside passage of Alaska. And I'm like, no, Northern California. They, they, no one knows about Fort Ross, right? Uh, but there are these wild kind of overlapping, and there's a lot of overlapping. That's that's, and they had these diplomatic uh, disputes on who, who gets to uh, fish or trade with the natives on on what 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 different locations. And of course, the British were there. The probably the most famous British explorer ever, James Cook, was there, uh, also looking for the Northwest Passage. That's of course one of the things that draws. Also, besides the trade, the Northwest idea of Northwest Passage is, is a kind of a European obsession. From the very early on, uh, when the first Spaniards get, they get to California, they think that the Chinese, China is just, just right, right there. It's reachable. Even later on, when, uh, when the Spanish galleons cross the Pacific and you, you, you can, they realize that it's, it's China is pretty far away, uh, still this myth persists that, 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 that there's this, there could be this closeness, that there could be these passages uh, we can exploit. And the Northwest Passage, of course, uh, with the climate change these days, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's now open in the summers, uh, in my understanding, at least for a short while, which is terrifying, uh, but, but, but for, for, the, for the environment. But still, in the, in the 1700s, 1800s, Europeans were obsessed with finding these, these shortcuts and these routes. And, uh, that kind of brings all the potential players. But of course, it was a global, uh, it was kind of a global game. When we talk about globalization these days, we usually think about the recent past. And early on in, in, in the modern era you know, exploration, uh, we had these uh, trade companies, the British East India Company, uh, Hudson's Bay Company, they even had a Russian Alaskan Company, uh, the Swedes also had a, they had a Caribbean company or something like that. But they, they were basically global players uh, engaged in different kinds of trade. Uh, slavery was, of course, essential part of that as well. But not only African slavery, but also other other forms of slavery uh, and different kinds of connections. And it became later on, especially it became in the Europe. This kind of idea: that if you want to be a, a big significant nation of significant people you needed to have an empire you needed to play globally uh, and it applied also to smaller states later on the polish and the Finns as well we had all the, all sorts of different very weird and fantastic uh, <laughs> dreams of, of of conquering space and in uh, not only in our neighboring areas but in africa as well and all sorts of crazy plans yeah, so that we have century, you know, a couple early centuries in the American West where it's the playground, yeah, for global empire. Uh, but Americans look at the region, and since it became America, we read backwards onto it the idea that it was always destined to be American, yeah. or it was, or that somehow it was always 
um, inherently American, but it it was not. And also, if you look at, especially when we expanded out into that maritime world along the Pacific coast, you look at who the crewmen were on these different ships and Spanish ships weren't just all a bunch of Spaniards working the ship. The ships are all these just wildly international crews that are operating in this whole Pacific well, and, and you know Atlantic worlds. So again, the, the making the coast even more more international than we may may That's otherwise true. think. And it also applies to the to the interior posts as well with the Hudson's Bay Company. Uh, it was a couple of years ago the WHA was in Portland. Uh, uh, we visited Fort Vancouver and uh, just realized that the Fort Vancouver uh, the, the personal there was basically from all over the world. It was all, almost, most nations of Europe were represented and there were different types of people from Pacific, uh, different Pacific Islands. Uh, Asians were there, Native Americans was there, were there as well. And not only local Native Americans, but from, from New England, for example. And uh, so it was very, it's also it's, it's very fascinating to see that these, these people had these connections and these global lives. Because like I said, uh, you grew up with these nation state histories, but then uh, later on uh, as, as a professional history historian, you start to realize that there's these connections are endless, that these are, these are, these are so, so, so large and so complicated that at least for me, they are, they are very fascinating. And, I, and for, at least my students are usually surprised by these connections. Yeah. And We have this idea that globalization and complex international relations are, only occurred in the modern era, but not the case, not the case yeah, at all. The case, yeah. Well, as we move more towards the interior, you also bring in um, that of kind of more traditional Great Plains, you know, an interior West agricultural settlement and the different types of settlers that come and settle the American interior, which again, for many Americans, they view kind of the agricultural pioneer imagery as these are the most prototypical Americans, the most American of Americans, right? Salt of the earth, getting their hands in the dirt, Americans. And if you've spent much, I spent, you know, about a decade on the Great Plains and all over the Great Plains, there's Swedish towns and Czech towns and German towns. And uh, you go farther up under the Canadian prairies and there's Ukrainian and Russian and Germans from Russia. And once we say get into the mid 1800s, uh, even the interior of the country and those, th those that are peopling it are wildly international. What are some of the more compelling stories you think of these international settlers who come to the American interior and populate the American West? I think one of the things that to try to make clear in the book that the American West was was just part of this settler revolutions that it was a, it was more transnational transimperial whatever term you want to use uh, global phenomenon that that brought these different peoples and and in many places the Europeans were were the majority and but also in many places uh, for example uh, people came and came and went they were these migrant families who located, for example, in Nebraska, then moved to Dakotas and then Canada and then the back back to Nebraska. This, and they all used these networks. They went back home, for example, to Finland or Norway, Norway or Germany, recruit their neighbors there, and then we lived with those old neighbors in in, in, in the in the new world. There's one one story, and I just need to check the figures from the book actually. Uh, about how, how these these kind of farming migrations, settler migrations, were also uh, part of this marketing, marketing boosterism, which was, had global dimensions as well. There were hundreds of people working to find new settlers from Europe, not only from American companies uh, or states, or, or, but also from Canada, from New Zealand. They were printing these thousands of leaflets. Uh, they were having these public, public tours in Europe, they were sending speakers to Europe to do all this, this recruitment. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of these different types of connections going on. And the book mentions that there's this um, one speaker working for the Southern Pacific Railroad uh, uh, who went, uh, who was basically touring uh, in, in, in the UK mostly. Uh, he was giving his regular presentation, Wonders of the Western Country. and. By the time he retired, he had given that same 
speak speech 3,357 times, reaching 1.5 million people, an estimate, of course, but still, uh, by speaking, of the lecturing, recruiting people uh, to come to the to the U.S. West. But it's very important also to realize that that not all were welcome. And that was also a transnational, transimperial phenomenon. We all know about the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, uh, but also other empires, uh, the British in South Africa or Australians, they uh, they were in dialogue with each other. They were uh, uh, enabling similar types of legislation that kept kept certain people out, and they were copying those those. Uh, legislations. Uh, they were using examples. From, one of the popular examples that that these uh, these uh, people who wanted to exclude the Asians from from the American West used was 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 the, uh, the British Natal in, in, in South uh, the province in South Africa. And they saw that in Natal, where the British had brought in Indian and Chinese laborers, and they had become a minority basically there. Uh, they had at least they had outnumbered the whites, which was a crucial point. Uh, and it was used as, as, as an example of, of how you need to need to have this title legislation. Uh, the Chinese were, of course, the, the prime target at the time, uh, and this kind of idea that uh, there was also this this and, uh, and these were not only extreme extremist ideas, but this idea that there would be a royal war between the Chinese and the, the, the whites. This kind of global racial war, and it was even thought at West Point. At, at, at some time, uh, that, that they were kind of you know serious military thinkers, at least they portrayed to be that. That, well, of course, this idea that there would be this great racial war. But also, if you talk about the Chinese migration, American West was just one of those many many places where the Chinese went. The most the Chinese migration, which is in numbers, is in tens of millions, like the European migration. Uh, most Chinese went to their own frontiers, uh, their own American West in Jiangjing or in Manchuria, uh, and most went there, uh, conquering areas and competing with the Russians in Manchuria over these these areas. And other Chinese, millions of Chinese went all across Southeast Asia, which is also something. At least for for me, me these are these are these are they're not new things, but they're fascinating things. And last last winter, I taught a course in. At the Free University of Berlin on, on global settler colonialism, and my my, my student body was was very co- actually for once, and, but and truly global. We had from all all, all, the, all the continents basically students there. One of some of them were from Malaysia, and they picked up. They made a presentation on Chinese settler colonialism in Malaysia, and it was very poignant. This idea that the Chinese came and 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 became made themselves this upper class. And that Chinese settler colonies was still an ongoing thing in Malaysia that they they had not recognized. Uh, one of the students was from Taiwan, which also had these similar dimensions that the indigenous Taiwanese are suppressed still and they had to be not been recognized. And so all this kind of t- stuff that happens in the American West ha- happens elsewhere, and it's yeah. connected to, to these different places. And I'm, I'm getting too excited almost. Now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not unique uh, to the American West, you know. Mer- there's all. We have all these ideas of American exceptionalism, and we think, oh, these poor European farmers needed some place to go, and so they all came to the American West. But some came to the American West, but some also went to Australia, and some went to South Africa, some went to South America, right? So the things that happen in the American West are happening globally, and I, and that's interesting that even immigration policies like like Chinese exclusion, Americans aren't coming up with these ideas in a vacuum. They're in conversation and dialogue with other global policies that other empires are are taking on. Right, right. And if you think about different uh, immigrant groups, what I've been mo- mostly interested lately is the German German colonialism as a global phenomenon as well. Um, if you think of that, the Germans are the the biggest single white ethnic group in the American West. Uh, and as in certain locations, you can still easily see it, like in Nebraska, where I was. I spent a year and a half as a Fulbright at the, at the UNL. And whenever you read the local paper, uh, there was this Mary Jackson, and you, there was Schulzen and Schmitz right there still. Uh, and and it, uh, but still, you can find the Schmitz and Schulz in southern Brazil, 
in Ar- Argentina, uh, and, and you can you can still find them there. And it was also Iran, ironic that the, the, the German Empire, the Kaiserreich, conquered uh, what is today Namibia, the German Southwest Africa, for the purpose of that it would become a, a new Germany. But nobody wanted to go there. Everybody wanted to go to the to the to, to the North America, North America or South America for, for the most part. And this kind, of, but there was the motivation for German colonial conquest in what was German Southwest Africa was that it would attract these German settlers who were now moving uh, to other to areas of other empires. Mm-hmm. So one type of connection there as well. My students were always surprised when I taught in Nebraska to learn about that real international, the international flavor of agricultural settlement there in the region. And we would then walk through, you know, the World War One and World War Two eras in the United States. And it was no longer fashionable to be proudly ethnically German during World War One or during World War Two. So we have this really rich diversity, ethnic diversity on the plains and other places in the United States that is very suppressed during the World Wars. And many by in these communities intentionally trying to prove their Americanness by downplaying right the, their Germanness. Right. I, I don't remember if it was in World War One or World War Two, but there's this one town in Nebraska. Um, I want to say it was Garland, Nebraska, maybe. Um, but uh, the town's original name was like Germantown or something like that. And so the town said, hey, we need to rename the, our, our town. How about we'll rename it after the first one of our residents who um, is killed in action in, in the war? And we'll name it in right. their honor. Well, of course, the first person killed, the last name was Schultz or something, like a very German sounding name. And they're like, okay, well, maybe the second person. And I, th- I think it was Garland. I think that's the one. Right. And that's they... <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that, uh, that uh, wonders me is why Bismarck is still still, still existent in North Dakota. North Dakota. What, what, how come that, that, that name never changed? But of course, there are these German connections. And, and World War One, when, when, of course, the U.S. and Germans are on opposite sides for the first first time. Uh, there, there is this. If the people change their last names, uh, German newspapers are are beginning to fade away. Uh, one of the things I mentioned in the book is uh, is San Antonio, which usually, at least, I don't usually connect to Germanness. Although I realized that there was a lot of Germans in Texas at one point, and there still are. But this San Antonio, this this this, this stories uh, that. Uh, in the late 1800s, before World War One, uh, the, the common parlance, common talk in, in town that was German. That, that the, the Mexicans knew how to, to converse in, in German, but eventually, of course, that 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 died down very quickly. And the World War, both World War Wars, are, of course, are to, are to blame. Uh, but uh, there are these German connections. Uh, of course, Dwight Eisenhower was Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is of, of, of German descent, uh, but but the, uh, one of the things I, I when I was in Nebraska, it's, it's almost twenty years ago when I was in Nebraska. Still remember this. Uh, we, we we were talking with the, with, the, with my my wife and kids uh, finishing in the local local grocery store, and one of these the older lady came up. Are you talking German? Uh, I said, no, no, we are from Finland. We are from. Uh, and the, uh, then she started to explain how how her grandparents came from Germany, but how her father forbid anybody in the family of reading or talking in German when she was a kid. So she didn't, and she was very in her 80s or 90s already. So that was kind of a... This is uh, a common story. Like there are a lot of American families who have this exact same story. One thing I really liked about your book is that it takes, it addresses a lot of Western tropes, uh, stereotypes about the West, and then shows how um, they're really actually more international in context than we think. And one of the most uh, striking, you know, if you grew up on Western movies, movies or dime novels or things is the idea of the West as um, a place of, of violence. And you recast the violent West as often violence occurring on frontiers and borders and violence on the edges of empire, which uh, be it uh, competing Euro-American empires or a violence across the frontiers and borders with indigenous peoples or indigenous peoples uh, crossing imposed Euro-American borders. What is it about the uh, a borderland region 
or a frontier or where there's where, where empires meet that uh, amplifies violence or that encourages it or that focuses it on these certain regions of course it, it depends on, on on the players uh, on the time and place there's the, what, what what the aims are but of course if you think about the settler colonial expansions uh the settler colonialism is it doesn't tolerate competition so you need to have total control of that area uh you need to kind of and the idea is to replace those already there so you need to eliminate them in in, in, in one way or another of course elimination doesn't necessarily mean violent physical violence uh, but often those who resist, those who are military powerful uh, indigenous uh, communities already, they're independent indigenous communities, they, they easily create clashes. But also, if you think about borderlands more, more broadly, it it's offers spaces for different types of players, indigenous and non-indigenous indigenous, to take benefit of their neighbors, uh, to, to raid, uh, to try to exploit, um, been studying the Apaches quite a uh, quite a bit, and in certain Apache communities, not 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 at all, but what, what you usually call the Chiricahua Apaches, and what you usually see as these common ap Apache types, uh, the idea that those who had transgressed their borders, uh, whether it be the Othams or the Mexicans or the Americans or whoever, they kind of owed the Apaches something uh, as a payment. And if they were not willing to give the payment easily, they, they, they there was this logic that you could you could raid them and you can just uh, make them pay for passage or mining rights or whatever was happening on on your lands. Of course, one of the things I want to emphasize in this book also is the indigenous participation. That uh, this uh, there's of course there's not a lot, but there, there's talk about the Comanche Empire there and these uh, Lakota expansions, the Apaches as borderlands trade raiders, also Maka meeting the, in the Pacific Rendezvous, and, and that the indigenous peoples are active participants in all these these things going on, uh, and they are not victims uh, as, as a rule, uh, but they are they are part of the mix and they they. There, there's individuals making different choices uh, and, and different types of communities. But of course, the violence, uh, I draw a lot of connections for, to Southern Africa, for example, using James Kump's uh, uh, great book, Dust, Dust Rose Like Smoke, uh, which is one of the things I read in, when I was at UNL. Uh, John Wonder made me read it. Uh, <laughs> and so maybe, maybe these read it too. <laughs> between the Lakotas and the Zulus, and the British Empire and the U.S. Empire in the in the plains, one of those connections. But there's also the different types of explorations that we can still do, and that's one of the the ideas of this book is the is as a synthesis that it would kind of entice new scholarship that it would open uh, make visible certain possibilities that you can compare. What are some of the other ripe comparisons that you think? that you want to see like the, the next books on like what are the, what's your list what i'm of... working on right now is is comparing the u.s conquest of the southwest with the uh, german conquest of southwest africa uh for example uh trying to see connections in in in, in, in violence is one of those but also more broadly in, in in colonial empire building but if you could talk about violence German uh, officials sent uh, representatives from, from Southwest Africa, to, for example, to Arizona to look at the, the San Carlos Indian Reservation and see how things are done in, in, the, in the early 1900s in, in the U.S. Southwest, and then try to implement those learnings against the Herero and Nama peoples in Southwest Africa. But what I argue is that is that the Germans uh, took that violence. They so admired and wanted to copy from the American West. They took it one step beyond. They made it so systematic that it, uh, that it, the systematic genocide or state-led genocide. If you think about the American West, there are genocidal events, moments, whatever you want to call them. But usually they are the not always. Usually they are the results of settlers, not the federal government. The federal government did not have policy. To exterminate all Cheyennes or all Chiricahuas. Uh, Civil War volunteers are a different case. Uh, <laughs> but 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 in, in Southwest Africa, the, the, the federal uh, the, the German government, the Reich, 
uh, implemented these genocidal violent measures, uh, and they did it against the opposition of local settlers who wanted to use the, the indigenous peoples as labor force. But still, the, the government had this notion that we will destroy these Hereros and Namas once and for all, and then German ethics Germans can come and, and settle these areas. So, but there's, there's tons of different kind of connections also. You can draw from uh, uh, French Algeria, uh, which also had this kind of uh, similarities to US Southwest, especially uh, of settler colonialism, penetrating a, mostly a desert region uh, and trying to conquer and, and, and exploit that. And of course, in, in the US Southwest, settler colonialism, whites became the majority in uh, French Algeria, although there were one million whites uh, by World War II. They were always the minority there. And after World War II, like we know, settler colonialism in French Algeria was overturned. And that's one of the things you usually think about settler colonialism as this permanent, ongoing, and it's, 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 it's certainly true in North America, Australia, New Zealand, but also settler colonialism can be overturned, uh, like in French Algeria, South Africa, German Southwest Africa, also some of the examples. Of course, that doesn't mean that there, have, there are no colonial legacies, that, that land rights, for example, land owning is, 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 doesn't reflect those old colonial legacies. But in theory, settler colonial powers can be defeated. And of course, in American West, that, that kind of I, the whole idea is very, uh, I don't know, <laughs> complicated. These global examples offer alternative possibilities of how things in the American West could have played out, right? There are post-colonial worlds elsewhere where settler colonialism was overturned, right? And um, it wasn't a foregone conclusion necessarily that it would not be that here as well. Uh, but again, I like how this contextualizing of things that we view in the American West is very unique. Not only did the you know, violence happen elsewhere, but often the colonial violence elsewhere was being explicitly patterned after what, what was being done in the American West and vice versa. So there's, again, there's global conversations of empires looking to each other, looking to the American West and, you know, exporting ideas, importing ideas. Uh, there's this, this global Isn't conversation. One of the things that's that interested me these days is, is fighting people who were actually uh, involved in different armies, different dif different types of, of colonial campaigns of violence. And and I managed to locate a couple of officers from, from the US Southwest who were example in the Boer Wars in, in South Africa and, and, and elsewhere. And, and also the use of indigenous soldiers is one of the things that we usually call the Indian scouts in, in, in the American West. It was also one of these patterns that, that people from abroad, from the British Empire, for example, came to the U.S. West to look at, and vice versa also. And, and they used this U.S. Indian scouts as a model, for example, in, in later in Kenya. Kenya. Um, and there's, there's also all different types of examples of, of, of going, on, going on. One of the things that, that also fascinates, that kind of humors me is, this, of course, Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, who was uh, having trouble in Haiti, uh, and because of the Haiti troubles, he came up Louisiana. So, so and, and instead of building a continental empire in in North America, he wanted to build a continental empire in Europe, and for a couple of years was doing great at it, but eventually was not successful. But he had these ideas of, 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 of that the whole Europe should become like a, a French settler colonial empire, which is, in hindsight, sounds absolutely ridiculous. But, 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 and, and, but it, it, just different connections are endless, let's basically. You do a chapter you call Intimacies of Empire, where and one of the more compelling things I found in terms of the direct comparative examples is these ideas about um, interracial unions, uh, mixed, mixed race populations, and how different empires, including what happened in the American West, you know, regulate race and construct ideas of race, who belongs, who does not, what kinds of interracial unions are permissible, which ones are not, what the, the consequences of them are. How does the, the formation of race in the American West compare with the things we see in these other colonial uh, empires elsewhere in the world? Yeah, I think there are, there are a lot of Similar types of connections we, we talked about with the, with the exclusion acts, the, the immigration. Uh, once more, people are in conversation with each, with each other over imperial borders. Uh, 
there's this kind of shared ideas of what Victorian era middle class culture contains, uh, who and who is white and who is not. But of course, there's a lot of differences. But also in American West, uh, before the, the real the U.S. settler takeover, uh, there was a lot of racial mixing. Um, think about the fur trade, for example. Uh, a lot of these interracial unions and 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 some of them were very high 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 status people who were doing it for the Hudson Bay Company, and they sent their mixed race kids to these uh, world class schools in London or Montreal or whatever. And the same was happening in European empires. When the Dutch East Indies, uh, uh, the, the Dutch men were having interracial unions with, with local women. And often it was, it was perfectly acceptable in the, say in the mid 1800s still. And some of these, uh, most of these kids were seen as white. They were sent to, to, to Amsterdam or wherever in Europe to, for schooling. Like it was a common thing to do with the upper classes or middle classes. But at some point, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, with the exclusion acts, with this the rise of the settler revolutions, this rise of the settler colonial world, uh, racial lines became much harder. Uh, much, much it was much more tighter definitions of who was white, and while in the past it was easy to claim whiteness by by acting like one, uh, by behaving, by associating with other whites. It was not necessarily important of what, what, what skin color you had, but, but, but how you behaved, how you were educated, uh, how you lived, who, how you uh, dressed, for example. And that kind of continued, but there was this legislation banning interracial unions. Uh, in the American West, we have these, and there's different types of bans. White, black were usually more, more strict than white uh, Native American bans. But there's also similar things happening in, in the Dutch East Indies, for example. Uh, the, you know, the, inter the offspring of interracial unions were no longer considered as Dutch or white. Uh, there was even plans of, of, of resettling these mixed race people in Papua New Guinea, uh, establishing a, a kind of this colony of, of mixed race Dutch settler colony in, that never, never happened, actually. But also in, in German Southwest Africa, where Germans have been coming uh, in small numbers, but still from the 1880s onward, it was in uh, 1905 or six, not that, well, anyway, 1905 or 1906, that this new legislation banned interracial marriages and it applied in, 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 to all those marriages already in existence. So you can have these, German, these kids of children born from mixed race unions who were say, whatever their age was in 1905, they lost their German citizenship overnight. They were no longer considered German and they were no, as such, they were no longer considered white. So was the hardening of racial lines, say, in German Africa um, more severe than in places in the American West? I think West? It, was, it was, once more, the idea was that it should become a new Germany, that you needed kind of this pure ethnic white Germans in there, that, that mixed race unions were, were a terrible thing. And I think that but the similar type of ideas are, are in the American West as well, in the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And they are also in South Africa, of course. Uh, and not sure if they're only in settler colonies, because Dutch East Indies, it's not a settler colony. And they also have these kind of title legislations. White Australia policy comes in, it's 1901 or something like that, uh, which basically bans uh, anybody else who is not identified as white from, from entering Australia. And of course, who is white? Uh, uh, <laughs> That's changing uh, Irish well. were not white in the 1820s. Uh, yeah. The Finns were not white at some point. We were Mongols or, or Asians in, 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 in North American discourse. And of course, racial sciences are a big thing at that time. And there's these definitions and who, who qualifies as white. And, uh, and oh, but, but the, it's, it's, it's a very fascinating phenomenon because it happens in this different, of course, it happens in unevenly. It, 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 and the connections are, are, are multiple. But, but there are connections and there are things happening in different parts of the world. Is there kind of a commonality of at the early stages of empire and settler colonial or other forms of empire, these intimate mixings are more yeah. permissible. Uh, often, be, uh, often they're actually a necessity. And in some cases yeah, they're encouraged they as a way to 
get a yeah. get a foothold, right? Yeah. But then once the peripheries start to be then pulled into tighter control of the empire, or as the settler, you know, expansion starts to bring more, you know, more white people out to the frontier, those interracial uh, unions become less and less permissible. But so, do you see a commonality across the world of, of a general pattern there? There's definitely a commonality, and of course, it has to do with the with the, the number of white women. Uh, in these colonies, uh, and, and the idea of, of of can we have white women in these colonies? Because previously, uh, take for example the Dutch East Indies and German Southwest Africa as as, as examples once more. Uh, women were forbidden from, from from settling there. It was seen as too dangerous, too hostile that they would not make it in the environment that the natives would be a danger to these white women. But at some point, the idea. Uh, started to change and, and it was encouraged that that white women should be allowed to travel it was actually there was these organizations who paid uh, for the travel who recruited white women in germany for example uh, to become housewives in, in southwest africa and and perhaps the germans once once more uh, took it to the next level because in southwest africa it was it was not a good thing to have even native servants you need that, that even the servants needed to be German because you'll see that the natives, native servants would, would contaminate the family, would contaminate the kids, and also seduce the husband. So basically, in German thinking, mm. the husband was the weakest yeah. link in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the whole thing. Yeah. And I know in other places, white women were um, actively recruited to co- uh, in missionary efforts, uh, in education efforts, but they at some point were then viewed as well, maybe they will be the bearers of civilization that will bring proper society and civilization you know out to these savage frontiers but th- there's a there's a real gendered yeah. aspect to these racial relations i was just talking yesterday with some people about um andres resendez's book the other slavery where he's talking about indigenous slavery in the americas and he brings up the point that at various moments in in new spain that the price for but the prices of indigenous slaves that indigenous women were priced higher than indigenous men as slaves, but it was not the case at the same time and place with African slaves. Okay. So uh, people felt it, would, it was okay to be intermarrying with or, or having children with indigenous women, but not with enslaved African women, right? And so there's, there's a gendered aspect to these many of these things, uh, but it's applied unevenly to different it is, places it is. Um, uh, by these colonial empires. One of the things, of course, explaining why why Asian women were banned is, of course, that the that the, the Asian men would not, not not reproduce offspring, but also that the Asian women would not seduce white men. It's, the Asian women were seen as perhaps the most dangerous of all. Um, but of course, yeah. uh, white the the, the 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 mission of the of the white women is is as civilizing influence. Is also a global global phenomenon. Like, take for example, Margaret Jacobs' uh, excellent excellent book, uh, uh, when he, where she makes a great case for this maternal maternal colonialism in uh, American West and in Australia, and uh, that this had this civilizing mission of of, of re-educating the the, abor- the indigenous youth um, and make the indigenous youth as this kind of uh, Clones of white, of you know, whites, if you want to call, them, call it that way, but basically uh, cut, cut away their Indianness or Aboriginality uh, and make them, them. Of course, the women's role is, is, is fascinating in, in many levels as well, because at least once more in German Southwest Africa, German women became the, the hardest advocates for racial boundaries, uh, which is quite. It's, it's one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm doing work on right now, and it's it's, it's the, some of the texts are are astonishing, uh, even for a historian who's have been working on on, on colonialism for for a decade or more. It's still shocking. You still yeah, find we, shocking. We things, a lot about yeah. the, the U.S. settler woman in, in Arizona, and and they of course they had middle class women. They had this certain certain attitude towards the Apaches, but it usually mixes uh, contempt with curiosity. Uh, but in the in general Southwest Africa, it's just contempt with hatred and, and mm. advocates for violence. Uh, well, of course, not, not everybody, but, but, but there's, there are several of those diaries. I mean, if you read some of the accounts of um, the, the wives, you know, in Southern plantations in the American South, and I mean, 
there are mixed race children walk running around the plantation as a visible as visible proof of their husband's infidelity right and so it's maybe no wonder that say you know german women in south africa were the ones advocating for racial purity because the evidence of, mi of mixed race children are evidence that their men are uh, not being faithful. Yeah, that's true. You know? that's true. Um, and I also think about, I mean, we, we could go on and on about this, but there is, there's such a wealth of new works coming out with these comparative angles and the American, I mean, I have a lot of, a number of books with comparing the American West with Australia. I'm thinking of Anne McGrath's recent book, Illicit Love, Margaret Jacobs. Books. House um, also. Th there's, yeah, Kat Ellinghouse is a new one. Yeah, um, uh, Claudia uh, Hake. I mean, there's there's so much comparative work being done, uh, and a, and a lot of it because uh, you do have two um, kind of Anglo colonial projects right in the in North America or Canada that you can then bounce off of the another Anglo uh, colonial project in Australia. It makes for a really fertile comparative ground. Um, so I, I recommend readers to go do some digging because there's, I mean, the first real comparative work I think I was exposed to was, yeah, was Gumps, yeah, same here. Lakotas and, and, and Zulu, right? And I found that really interesting. And since then, you know, or, or Steve Sable wrote this book about um, American policies with Lakotas compared to Russian policies Kazakhs, yeah. with Kazakhs. Um, there's so much great comparative work being done. We need to uh, start wrapping up, but you, you, your final chapter, you close your book talking about how uh, foreigners um, coming to the American West, like what their their uh, impressions of the West were, but then also how they were consuming Western things through uh, entertainment, right? By you know these traveling uh, shows from the West that came to Europe. Um, also then viewing you know these western people and native americans who would come through europe what can you tell us about how uh, or what what can what can western americans learn by thinking about how foreigners have viewed the region consumed the region co-opted ideas and turned it into popular media like what what do we have to learn from how um how foreigners uh, have played around with who that, and what we are but i guess one thing you can even at least learn is that uh, European fascination with with the American West goes far beyond movies. It, it 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 predates the movies quite a bit because in this chapter, which is my favorite chapter of the book, but I realize it's kind of a mixed mixed bag of, of different things. Uh, the chapter is called Imperial Eyes. Uh, it has some travel travel writers starting from from the 1800s. Richard Francis Burton, the famous British explorer, was in the American West. He's one of the things I mentioned. Uh, also, these writers like Rudyard Kipling was in, was in the American West. Uh, all these world famous people, also several women, Isabel Bird, very famous explorer in her time as well, also took to, to the Rockies and wrote about it. There was, of course, hunt, bison hunters uh, coming from Europe and these different uh, high, high Higher brow, higher middle class people uh, being intoxicated with with the hunting, and some of those European aristocrats, for example, took the, took bison home to England, and they had their, they had bisons on their estates in England, which is one of the Im images that is very absurd, at least to me. Uh, <laughs> Are there any good historic photographs I, I of that, that bison the, on an in the English countryside? Because that would be that yeah, would be a great would picture. Be, it would be. And then, of course, there's different types of, of, of uh, uh, cultural exchange, uh, Buffalo Bills, Wild West being the, to the one example everybody knows. But these, what Buffalo Bill was, uh, his show was part of this, this, this global phenomenon of, of human shows, human exposition, expositions, what some of the scholars call these days human zoos. Were, were Europeans creating these human zoo expositions from other colonial yeah. places from Southeast Asia, Africa, were they bringing indigenous people from there to Europe as well? people from all over the place. After, shortly after the, the Zulu Wars, for example, in South Africa, and I think it was a couple of months after that, the Zulus were dance, dancing in London and in New York. And all those different kind of conflicts brought, brought these different peoples to Europe. Uh, one of, the, one of the, the, the prominent people on, on this was a German impresario called Karl Hagenbeck, who started a world famous zoo outside Hamburg, and the zoo is still there. 
uh, outside Hamburg, he brought in wild exotic animals and wild exotic peoples from the 1870s onward. And he brought, for example, Sami people from Finland, from Northern Finland, and also uh, Lakota parties. Uh, he, there was this, one of the examples I use in the chapter is, is the early, early 1900s, several different peoples rushing to the Lakota reservation to recruit them uh, to all over these different shows across the world. And these, these, were, these were mass entertainment because, for example, the Lakotas in, in Hagenbeck's zoo in Stellingen, Stellingen outside Hamburg, it was summer of 1912 or something, but the, the years are terrible for me. Uh, but nevertheless, they drew a crowd of millions of people went to see them. And also those big world fairs had different uh, exotic peoples from all over the world. And it was kind of, there was different touring groups within within Europe who crossed from Australian Aborigines toward Europe and North America. There were these world tours going on. And some of them actually reached even Finland, which is which was kind of odd because usually they went to Stockholm or St. Petersburg, but there have been a couple of, uh, I found a couple of newspaper clippings, old, old newspaper clippings of these shows in, in Helsinki, and the, the whole town goes crazy, basically. Uh, kids are playing cowboys and Indians in, in every courtyard after that, uh, and people are amazed at these, these opportunities. And of course, some of those people who tour Europe, uh, this is, of course, another type of history, not just exploitation, uh, but also these histories of intimacies, that some of them stay, actually. They, they, they just skip the tour group, end up uh, marrying a European uh, woman or man and, and integrate them. So it's European, Europeans. I've heard a lot of some stories of, of especially in Scotland of these. And uh, some of, one of the things that I'd like to check out later, at some point uh, when, when I have the time. So <laughs> yeah, many things to check out that's, later, that's one right? That's things with doing this kind of book. Uh, it, it starts with the fascination of these connections. But when you start to kind of dig, dig a, a bit deeper, not, 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 not a lot even, but a bit, bit deep, deeper and, and record these connections and, and, and what kind of scholarship has been done already, you realize that we have only scratched the surface. That there, there's, there's so much stuff that, that uh, needs to be known more that we realize that we are all humans, that we are all connected, that we have all been connected uh, well, for who knows how, how long. It's an it's a important reminder. Um, and I appreciate bringing that to, you know, to, to our discussion of the West. Um, the West did not develop in a vacuum where it's interconnected. And, you know, but for many people who study, you know, who are trained in the academy and make this their life study, many of us are, you know, trained, I took coursework on American history, again, very kind of nation state bounded history, which discourages us from thinking transnationally and discourages us from breaking out of this national paradigm. But more practically, to do some of this work, uh, many of us don't have the funding to travel all over the world to all the archives you would need to go to. Many of us don't speak That's all true. of the That's languages that, that, that would be well, required. So. And so, yeah, there's so, there's so many obstacles into doing this work. But yeah, as you say, if you scratch the surface a little bit, I mean, I have, you know, a bunch of files of kind of weird or strange, intriguing stories I found in the archives that are just seem so out of place. And I'm like, there, there's a big story to be told there, right? And I'm sure that with the kind of work you're doing at every corner, there's a new file you have to make about, oh my word, there is a global story to be told here that no one's thought about and there and um, that must be exciting for you, but also maddening because there's no oh, way you'll ever get oh to all God. of it. Well, you already mentioned that you're working on a book uh, comparing uh, with Germans in South Africa and the American Southwest. And you already talked about that a little bit. What else do you have in the works? And then we'll we probably need to wrap these things that, up. That is uh, basically what I'm, the main thing I'm working on is this title uh, of comparing American Southwest with the German Southwest Africa, this, this, the settler colonial uh, places, uh, focusing on violence and, and these interracial intimacies, uh, but also these, these human shows as well. It's kind of uh, connections on, on these different levels. That, that's, that's, that's what I was, I'm, the main thing I'm, I'm supposed to do this, these days. But of course, there's so many other stuff. I'm, one of the things I, I wrote an, an article, I'm, I'm writing an article on, is, is on, 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 on the Mesa Verde uh, repatriation of, of the Gustav Nordenshire collection. Uh, well, just some of those were 
given back to, to the to the Hopi last last year, and there's this, and of course that ties to these all sorts of different global issues of of colonial legacies, colonial heritages, ongoing colonialism in Europe, uh, repatriation of of, of different uh, looted uh, cultural artifacts, uh, different types of items, and of course it ties to the my interest in, in German colonialism. Uh, the Humboldt Forum is, is about, it's, it's open already, but of course it's open online, but it's about to open in, in Berlin uh, for real, hopefully one, once this epidemic goes away. But there's a lot of colonial looted artifacts in Humboldt Forum and how that story is being dis displayed and how Germans are telling their, uh, and, and making kind of, coming to grips with their own colonial history. If, if, if one of the things that Germany is, is, that fascinates me is how they, have been very thorough in their coming to terms with, with the Holocaust and and and, and the, the the World War II issues and legacies. But the, but many scholars claim that colonialism is, is is kind of a amnesia in in Germany, and that is what is coming coming up next. So these kind of different types of connections connected with repatriation and and all those those issues is some, some one of the things that fascinates me as well. Well, I love it. I can't wait to see it all come out. And I hope that travel restrictions uh, and, you know, lift soon so you can get out and do your absolutely, research absolutely. Uh, so that we can meet at a conference somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I need to get myself to Helsinki. That's, that's for sure. Well, thanks so much for spending uh, some time. I was going to say the morning with us, but for you, I believe this is the evening. So thanks for ending your day with us, Yanni. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. It, 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 was, it was a lot of fun. Well, that's it for this month. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll subscribe. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through, or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates, leave comments, and communicate with me. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We are an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understanding of the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream. We have an annual funding cycle with awards, grants, fellowships, in categories that nearly anyone researching and working on the region from nearly any disciplinary approach or towards nearly any kind of final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson. That's Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Bren Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, just about everything else, so you can direct praise or critique my way. I'm the author and editor of a number of books uh, and other studies on the West, Borderlands, Native Peoples, Genocide Studies, Religion, and the Environment. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or just about anything else, head to bwrensink.org. That's B-W-R-E-N-S-I-N-K.org. Or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. <laughs>